Chapter 4 of The Road to Mandalay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne Hadley. The Road to Mandalay by Bithia Mary Croker. Chapter 4 Kicks and Halfpence. More than four years had elapsed since Mrs. Shafto and her son had driven away from Littlecote, behind a pair of smart bay steppers. The widow was determined to keep up what she was pleased to call her position to the last. Immediately succeeding this dignified exit came a woeful change in their circumstances. Mrs. Shafto was obliged to make the best of boarding-house and bus, and Douglas, thanks to the exertions of his friends, the Treeman Hears, found a situation in a mercantile house in the city. There was no time for him to pick and choose. It was imperative that he should begin to earn without delay, and not, as his parent frankly remarked, look to a poor widow for support. This condition of abject poverty was, she declared, entirely due to his father's criminal carelessness respecting his affairs. She had, what would barely keep her alive, a hundred seventy pounds per annum, and that was all. As for Douglas, he must work. Although they were not congenial companions, Douglas faithfully accompanied his mother in her varied wanderings, supported her in action with enraged landladies, helped her out of a libel case, covered her reverses and retreats, and lived by command under the same roof. For the last eighteen months the pair had been established at a well-managed private hotel in Lincoln Square, Bayswater. W. Malahide was a flourishing concern. Two substantial houses had been thrown into one. The rooms were spacious, clean, and adequately furnished. The food was plain but abundant. The double drawing-room contained a fine piano, one or two sofas and card-tables, also a sufficiency of sound and reliable chairs, but not an ornament, save two clocks, not one paper fan, nor a bunch of colored grasses, nor a single antimacassar, not even a shell. Such amazing restraint gave the apartments an empty but dignified appearance. Among its various advantages, Malahide was within a few minutes' walk of the Grove and Underground, a situation which appealed to men in business and to women whose chief occupation was shopping. Mrs. Shafto appreciated her present quarters for several excellent reasons. Here she had no giggling young rivals, and was, even at forty-five, the best-looking and best-dressed of all the lady boarders. Moreover, she had found a friend and admirer in her neighbor at meals, a certain Mr. Manasseh Levison, a widower, with a stout figure, somewhat fleshy nose, and a pair of fine, piercing black eyes. He was the proprietor of a fashionable and flourishing antiquities and furniture business in a well-known thoroughfare, and was considered one of the best judges of old silver and china in the trade. It exasperated Shafto to listen to his mother's table talk, 
and he made a point of sitting as far away as possible from her vicinity. She liked to impress Levison and other with highly colored reminiscences of her grand acquaintances, even the Tremenhiers, with whom she had quarreled so bitterly, were dragged in and shown off as intimates. More than once Shafto had felt his face burn, as exaggerations and glorifications were unfolded in his parents' far-carrying and assertive trouble. Besides Mr. Manasseh Levison were the two Mrs. Smith, twins, genteel middle-aged spinsters, who, until the arrival of the sprightly and attractive widow, had alternately cherished high hopes of the wealthy Jew. Their chief energies were devoted to the task of blowing one another's trumpets, thereby drawing attention to particular virtues and modestly hidden accomplishments. For example, the elder would say, Darling Ella is so clever at cooking, as good as any French chef. Her sauces and savouries are too wonderful. They were. And Ella, in repayment, assured her listeners that Jessie had a perfect genius for gardening and housekeeping. And yet it was whispered that this effusively fond couple, when alone, quarreled and wrangled as cruelly as the notorious Kilkenny cats. Among other patrons at Malahide were two quiet, polite little Japanese gentlemen, Mr. Din and Mr. Yabe. Madame Galley, a shriveled old woman in a cheap wig, with sharp rat's eyes that nothing escaped, the soul of good nature, rich, miserly, and incredibly mischievous. There were several boarders who were in business in the city, and Mr. Hutton, a careworn man of fifty, who spent his days working in the British Museum. Next to him at table sat Douglas Shafto, now a well-set-up, self-possessed young fellow, who still retains something of the cheery voice and manner of the public schoolboy. Thanks to his steadiness and fair knowledge of French and German, he was drawing a salary of a hundred and fifty per annum. His neighbor to the left happened to be his own cousin, Sandy Larcher, older by three years and in the same office, but receiving a lower screw. Sandy was of the Canute tribe, a confident authority on dress, noisy, slangy, and familiar, much given to cigarettes and music halls, a slacker at work, but remarkably active at play, and on the whole, rather a good sort. Sandy's mother, Mrs. Larcher, the widow of a cab proprietor, was Mrs. Shafto's only sister, and in the days of that sister's glory had never obtruded herself. But now that poor Lucilla had come down in the world, she had advanced with open arms, and at Monte Carlo, the abode of the Larcher family, Mrs. Shafto occasionally spent a weekend. The go-as-you-please atmosphere, late hours, breakfast in bed, and casual meals, recalled old and not unhappy times. Mrs. Larcher, who had never been a beauty, was now a fat woman, past fifty, lazy, good-natured, and absolutely governed by her children. Besides Sandy, the dandy, she had two daughters, Delia and Cossie. Delia was on the stage, musical comedy, 
petite, piquant, and very lively, a true grasshopper, living only for the summer, a loud, reckless, but respectable young woman, who, having but thirty shillings a week salary, and to find her own tights, was ever ready to accept motor-drives, dinners, or a smart hat or frock from any of her boys. Cossie, the stay-at-home, was round-faced and plump, a tireless talker and tennis-player. She managed the house, held the slender purse, accepted her sister's cast-offs, and always had a case on with somebody. Cossie was exceedingly anxious, being the eldest of the family, to secure a home of her own, and made this alarmingly obvious. To Monte Carlo Douglas, the highly presentable cousin, was frequently commanded by both mother and aunt. At first he had hated this duty, but nevertheless went, in order to please and silence his parent, whose hand plied the goad, and who otherwise nagged at him in public and in private. In private, she pointed out, that the Larcher family were his own blood relations, so different from his father's side of the house, which, since his death, had ignored both her and him, and never even sent a wreath to the funeral. By slow and painful degrees, Douglas became accustomed to Monte Carlo. At first the manners and customs of his cousins had a rasping effect, and it was more than a year before he really fell into line and visited his kindred without pressure. The girls were not bad-looking, in a flamboyant style, and effusively good-natured. They took his chaff and criticism without offence, and accepted with giggles his hints with respect to manners and appearance. When Douglas happened to be expected, they did not stroll about slipshod in dressing-gowns, with their hair hanging loose, or bombard one another with corks and crusts. For his part, he brought them books and chocolates, watered the garden, mowed the tennis-ground, mended the bells, and made himself generally useful. At first this flashy, muddling, free-and-easy household had disgusted him, and his cool-assured manner and critical air irritated his relatives whilst his attitude of superior comment had proved a vexatious restraint. But week by week Douglas came to see that it was to this particular class he now belonged. These were his nearest relatives, and he told himself he must endeavor to accommodate himself to circumstances, and them. Otherwise he was a snob, a beastly snob. His first Christmas holidays had been spent at Tremenhir, where he had received a heart-warming welcome. Other school friends had also claimed him, but his time was now mortgaged to the office, and by degrees correspondence and intimacy languished, or rather changed. His contemporaries had gone forth into the wide world, the army, the diplomatic service, and India had summoned them. Their paths in life lay far apart that of a mere correspondence clerk, and only the old birds remained in the nest. Those who were in England wrote and made arrangements for meetings in town, but Shafto found ready and real excuses, and generally withdrew from his former circle. 
He liked his friends. Nothing could offer him so much pleasure as their company, but he realized that in time they would arrive at the parting of the ways, and it was for him to make the first step in that direction. In such homes as Monte Carlo, he must in future find society and entertainment. Monte Carlo, sixpence return, third class, from town, and eight minutes' walk from the station, was a grotesque little red-faced abode, situated among a tangle of villas and roads. It stood detached in a garden, with, oh, theme of pride, a full-sized tennis court. There were also several flower-beds and six unhappy gooseberry bushes, but the feature was the lawn. Here also were seats and a small striped awning. The grounds of Monte Carlo were only divided from its immediate neighbors by a thin wooden partition. There was no such thing as privacy or seclusion. Conversation was audible, and the boisterous jokes of Chatsworth and Travancore were thoroughly enjoyed at Monte Carlo. In the same way, Monte Carlo overheard various interesting items of news, some sharp quarrels, and, once or twice, unpleasant personal truths. On the last occasion, the remark was so unfriendly, it dealt with Cossie's methods, that when Chatsworth, ignorant of offense, sent the same evening an emissary to borrow three pints of stout, the reply was a harsh refusal. Within doors, space was naturally more contracted, but the click of the opposite gate the sound of the next-door dinner-bell and gramophone remained, as it were, common property. The tiny hall was choked with umbrellas, wraps, tennis shoes, and tattered sixpenny books. The drawing-room, with its pink casement curtains, gaudy cretonne covers, huge signed photographs, jars of dusty artificial bowers, packs of dingy cards and scraps of millinery, looked lived in, tawdry, and untidy. The big Chesterfield sofa, a wonderful bargain, had broken springs. Perhaps it was not such a wonderful bargain. And many hills and hollows. In the roomiest of these last, the mistress of the house was more or less a fixture, and the whole apartment, like a passe beauty, was to be seen at its best by candlelight. The dining-room was chiefly notable for the heavy atmosphere of tobacco and multitudes of empty black bottles under the sideboard. The kitchen, both in sound and smell, absolutely refused to be ignored. Such was Monte Carlo. The inmates of Malahide have received honorable mention, but nothing has been said of Mrs. Malone, the proprietress who kept the establishment running, as it were, on well-oiled wheels. Joyce Malone was an Irish woman who had met with cruel reverses. Well-born, well-educated, and an almost penniless widow, she thankfully accepted the post of housekeeper in a nobleman's family, and there remained until her savings and a timely legacy enabled her to set up for herself. From the first she had met with success. Her terms were moderate, butter, eggs, and poultry came from her native land, 
there was no skimping of coals or hot water, and clients who became permanent flocked to Malahide. In appearance, Mrs. Malone was a tall old woman with the stoop, who shuffled a little as she walked, and always wore a black gown, a gold Indian chain, and a white lace cap with ribbon bows. She kept severely aloof from her guests, and had her own little lair on the second landing. It was, she said, her business to see to domestic matters, and not to gossip or play bridge. Nevertheless, she had her favorites, Mr. Hutton and young Shafto. Envying and Malice declared that Mrs. Malone had no favorites among her own sex. She was drawn to the boy by his air of good breeding and admirable manners. Also she noticed with secret indignation how shamefully his mother neglected and snubbed him. She took far more notice of Jimmy Black or Sandy Larcher than of her own son. No doubt she disliked to be so unmistakably dated by this tall, well-grown youth, and her hostess mentally agreed with the gossip, who declared that Mrs. Shafto didn't care a pin for her boy, rather the other way, and if she had kept her figure, she could never keep her word or a secret, and that was a hard, selfish, grasping woman. Although Shafto and his mother lived under the same roof, she, figuratively, sat with folded hands, as far as he was concerned. It was kindly Mrs. Malone who looked after his little comforts, saw that his socks were mended, and made him a hot drink when he had a heavy cold. Also, as a special honor, she invited him to her den, gave him a cup of coffee or a glass of port, and talked to him of her Irish home and her young days. Once upon a time she had been a capital horsewoman, and it was strange to hear this old lady and the bright-eyed youth comparing notable runs. One day in the Strand at luncheon hour, Shapto came face to face with his old friend Geoffrey Treman here, looking bronzed, splendidly fit, and independent as a prince. "'Hello, Douglas!' he exclaimed. "'Well, if this isn't a piece of luck! "'How are you, old man?' "'Ah, right. And you?' "'I arrived from India yesterday, and go up to Scotland tonight. "'The family are all on the moors. "'I've just been looking for a pair of guns. "'Come and give your opinion, and then we will lunch. "'I'm stopping at the Grand.' "'I'd like to awfully. "'I need not tell you, Jeff, but I've got to be back at one fifteen sharp.' It's mail day. Oh, hang mail day. Come along and lunch, and let us have a good old book. I don't know what that means, but I'll be glad of lunch, and more glad of a bit of jaw. Now, tell me all about yourself, Douglas, said his schoolfellow, as they sat via vis in the marble hall. You don't look particularly chirpy. Still in the office? Yes, I expect to live and die there. "'Poor old boy, and doing work you hate. "'Oh, I'm getting used to it now. "'I shall manage to hang on. "'And Mrs. Shafto, how is she?' "'As usual, going strong. "'We live in the same boarding-house. Mm. "'Well, let me tell you this. "'You are in the black books at home. "'I hear you refuse all invitations "'and make monstrous excuses. "'You know I'd love to go down to Treeman here, "'but how can I?' 
My time is not my own, and I only got a week's holiday in August, and three days at Christmas. There's nothing to tell about my career. Let's hear yours. Thus invited, Geoffrey, a gay young officer in a crack regiment, broke into short and vivid descriptions of Indian quarters, polo matches, and capital black buck shooting in the central provinces, and gave a full and detailed history of his one tiger. Shafto, an eager and enthusiastic listener, exclaimed, "'I say, how splendid! Do you know, Jeff, I'd give ten years of this life to have a good chance of seeing the world, especially the East? Who knows? You might yet.' Pigs might fly. Still, I must not grumble. I'm delighted you have had such a glorious time. When one's friends are enjoying themselves, it's next best to doing the same oneself. What leave have you got? Only three months, and every hour is priceless. This time tomorrow I shall be blazing away at a grouse drive. From grouse they fell to talking of shooting, of old scenes, of rabbiting and ferreting, of cricket matches, schoolfellows, and scrapes. Suddenly, Douglas sprang to his feet and pointed to the clock. Only three months, and every hour is priceless. This time tomorrow I shall be blazing away at a grouse drive. From grouse they fell to talking of shooting of old scenes, of rabbiting and ferreting, of cricket matches, schoolfellows, and scrapes. Suddenly Douglas sprang to his feet and pointed to the clock. Half-past one! I must run! Good-bye and good luck, old boy! Wringing his friend's hand, I shan't forget this lunch in a hurry! And he was gone. This little break in talk of old times and warm friends gave Shafto something pleasant to think of for many days. It was like a gleam of sunshine in his gray and joyless life. Richard Hutton, hack writer and ghost, sat next to him at table twice a day, and proved a sympathetic neighbor. Hutton was a clever, cultured, and, when he pleased, a wholly delightful companion. Occasionally on Sundays the pair made little excursions together, visited the city churches and quaint bits of old London, or ventured a dash into the country or up the river. "'You say Friday is a holiday in your office, Shafto,' he remarked one evening. "'How would you like to come for a prowl and see what we can find in the Caledonian market? "'It's an out-of-the-way place where once a week all manner of rubbish is shot, "'and now and then you pick up a really staggering bargain.' "'What's that?' inquired Shafto. "'Well, I'm told that lately a woman bought a rusty steel fender for two shillings.' and when she went to clean it, it turned out to be solid silver, a bit of loot from some old French chateau. I must confess that I've never found any spoil, but I only root among the books. Once I thought I'd got hold of a Coverdale Bible, but it proved to be a fake. All right, agreed Shafto. I'd like to try my luck. I'll go with you and look for a set of gold fire irons. I've nothing special on only tennis in the afternoon, and the market is at its best in the morning. We'll start at ten. Friday morning found the couple roaming aimlessly round that great bare enclosure at the end of the Camden Road, known as the Caledonian Market. 
It was just eleven by the clock tower, and wares were still pouring in, arriving in all manner of shabby carts and vans, mostly drawn by aged and decrepit horses. Every variety of goods had its own particular pitch. In one quarter were piles of books, brown, musty volumes of all shapes and sizes, also tattered magazines, and of theological works a great host. Farther on the explorers came to a vast collection of old iron. It was as if numbers of travelling tinkers had here discharged their stock. Fenders, gasoliers, stair-rods, tin-cans, officer-swords, yes, at least a dozen, frying-pans and saucepans. Old clothes were needless to say, a prominent feature. Here you might suit yourself with a bald-looking sealskin, a red flannel petticoat, a soiled evening gown on graceful lines, or a widow's bonnet. Here also were black costumes, dripping beads, broken feathers, and hopeless hats. Old furniture had several stands, and was an important department. Grandfather clocks, sideboards, chairs, Chippendale or otherwise, chairs in horsehair or upholstered in woolwork, and framed family portraits solicited notice. Should any one marvel as to what becomes of the rubbish and relics belonging to houses whose contents have been scattered after several generations, trifles that survived fortunes, odds and ends which, for sacred reasons, people had clung to till the last, let them repair to the market. The relics are there, lying on unresponsive cobblestones, a pitiful spectacle, handled, despised, and cast aside, the precious hoarded treasures of a bygone age. Delicately worked samplers, faded watercolors, portraits, old seals, snuff-boxes and lockets, attract the curio hunter. Here is a prayer book with massive silver clasps inscribed, Dearest Mary, on our wedding day, June 4th, 1847, from Gilbert. There, in a red Morocco case, is a miniature of a handsome naval officer. At the back, under glass, are two locks of hair, joined by a true lover's knot in seed pearls. Some ruthless hand will pick out those pearls, and throw the hair away. For a considerable time, Shafto strolled about with his hands in his pockets, so far seeing nothing to tempt him. Meanwhile, his companion eagerly examined books and bargained over a tattered old volume. Shafto noted with surprise the number of well-dressed visitors poking among the stalls in search of treasure-trove. There were a parson with a greedy-looking leather bag, an officer in uniform, and various smart ladies, hunting in couples. Among a quantity of jugs and basins, soup-tureens and coarse crockery, Shafto's idle glance fell upon a frightful Chinese figure, the squat presentation of a man about eight inches in height. "'I say, did you ever see such a horror?' he asked, pointing it out to his companion. "'A curio for ugliness, and just the sort of monster Mrs. Malone would love. 
I'll try if I can get hold of it. What's the price of the china demon? He inquired of a wizened old woman who wore a bashed black bonnet and a pair of blue sand shoes. Five shillings, she replied promptly. Five shillings, he exclaimed. You're joking. No time for jokes here, she retorted. It's a good piece, picking up the figure, and come out of a grand house. If it were in Bond Street, they'd ask you five pounds. I showed it to a man who said it was good, although there's no mark, and it might be worth a lot. But I've no time to be raking up things. My trade is a quick sale and cash. I'll give you half a crown, said the customer. Two half crowns, and it's yours, and a bargain. You won't know the old fellow when he's had a wash. "'What do you say, Hutton?' inquired Douglas, turning to his friend. "'Well, I think you might risk five shillings. "'You don't see such ugliness every day, "'and I should not wonder if it was a good piece. "'I've never come across one like it. "'All right, then. I'll take the horror.' "'And in another moment the bargain was effected. "'Douglas tendered two half-crowns, which the old woman carefully examined and pocketed. Then she wrapped up the figure in a piece of crumpled newspaper, and presently he and his friend departed, each bearing his booty. "'There is little to find now,' said Hutton, as they passed through the gates. "'The market has become one of the weekly fashionable gatherings of the town, and is dredged by dealers from all over England, who look on it as a sort of a lucky bag. But the bag is nearly empty.' Mrs. Malone was enchanted with the monster. She had a secret weakness for cheap little gifts, that is to say, from her own particular friends. More than once Douglas had brought her some trifling tribute, but his mother had felt deeply affronted by such uncalled-for generosity to a stranger, and when he ventured to exhibit the Chinese atrocity, she exclaimed with great bitterness, "Oh." "'For Mrs. Malone, of course. "'It's rather strange that you never think of bringing me a present.' "'But, Mother, you wouldn't care for this sort of thing,' he protested, "'and it was awfully cheap.' "'Cheap and nasty,' she retorted. "'If you had offered me such a hideous rubbish, "'I'd have sent it straight to the dustbin.'" End of chapter 4